welcome to our 24th Rising Tide Ocean podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello there. And today we're uh, with our friend, one of our favorite people, Wendy Benchley. Wendy is a global spokesperson for the protections of sharks and sea life in general. Um, she's a 50-year diver veteran, member of the Women's Diving Hall of Fame. Uh, you've been honored with many awards. You're a board member of Wild Aid and our Blue Frontier campaign, of which we're all board members. And you're a trustee of the Environmental Defense Fund Advisory Board. And some years ago, you and I co-founded the Peter Benchley Ocean Awards, which is in honor of your late husband, Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws. The awards were really for his contribution to marine conservation. And uh, that went on to become kind of the Oscars of the ocean. But before we get into all of that, let's start with some of your background. I, I know you were co-founder of the New Jersey Environmental Coalition, a longtime Princeton councilwoman, uh, Princeton, New Jersey. So I guess you were the town and the old town and gown, college town conflicts. But uh, does that mean you started as a Jersey girl or where did you first spend your, your childhood? Oh, yeah. Each day? Oh, yes. Oh, Jersey girl, born and bred. I was born in Montclair, New Jersey, and then uh, lived in Princeton, New Jersey with Peter for, gosh, 35 years. So, um, so I was always Jersey bound. And, uh, and actually I got involved in environmental issues uh, by fighting the incinerator. They were gonna put an incinerator up in um, right near Trenton. And it just was so infuriating that, that they would do it right there, uh, you know, dumping toxic chemicals through the air on everybody. And I fought for eight years and made no progress at all. So I decided to run for office. So I ran for Mercer County Freeholder and um, as an independent, um, I didn't win, but the Democrats accepted me back into the fold and I ran as a Dem and then got elected and then went from the freeholder board to be a Princeton Borough Councilwoman for, gosh, I was in for 10 years. It was, oh, it was fascinating. I just loved it. Best job I've ever had. Um, we did a downtown development that was really a smart downtown development with a square and the library and um, businesses and restaurants around it. And um, we also did a lot with LEED, um, buildings with the lead standards for buildings. So it was, it was a great job. But our family um, had a place on Connecticut, on the Connecticut shore in Stonington, Connecticut. Mm. So that's where I went every summer and sailed and swam. And then Peter's parents um, had a house on Nantucket. Uh, and that's where I learned to surf. I was never very good at it, but I did try. And um, so when, when we really got involved in the ocean, it was part of, part of my soul. Um, but honestly, once I began to be a diver, that was when, uh, you know, once you can experience what lives under the water and the beauty and the fascination, I think that's when your heart strings are really captured forever. And then you and, and uh, Peter were up diving, started diving in, in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, of course he grew up with sharks up there. And eventually if we want to get to Jaws, he was already a successful writer when he wrote Jaws. Well, he was, he actually had been writing for Newsweek magazine and then um, was a speechwriter, a, a minor speechwriter for President Johnson. 
And then when Johnson didn't run again for office, Peter was out of a job and decided to try freelance, um, which is a big leap. As you know, David, <laughs> being a freelance writer is a really tough road. Uh, but he, he um, so he, he was doing articles for just magazines and we were living in Pennington, not much money. Uh, it was getting pretty desperate. So he finally did go to um, Doubleday, to the publisher, and said he had two ideas for, for novels, one about pirates and one about a great white shark that hangs around a town and causes havoc. And uh, so they, they accepted the idea. Uh, I told him I didn't think it was a very good idea and I wouldn't do it, Peter, don't do it, something else, anything. But um, they gave him $1,000, so he had to write it. Uh, <laughs> he had to write it or else he had to give the 1000 back. And of course, we spent the 1000 lickety-split. And uh, so then he was forced to write it. And you know, that one thing I was thinking about today is that um, he wrote the first rendition of Jaws as a comedy with a lot of humor in it. Really? And yeah, yeah. Uh, because he, he had great sense of humor and he loved having witty characters and repartee. And, um, and so that was just his natural instinct. Um, so Tom Congdon blessedly said, Peter, I think this is gonna be a great book, but you gotta get the humor out of it and just go for the drama. And it was a successful novel, but what was the lag time or you know between the novel and uh... Spielberg adapting it as what was really the first summer blockbuster movie. Oh yeah, well, no, the, the real genius was um, David Brown and Richard Zanuck who bought the novel and got the movie going both at the same time. So all the publicity for the movie was also publicity for the book. Oh. So that's, they were the first to do that and to really make it work that way. Um, and then, of course, Spielberg was a, a brilliant director. Um, all the other directors that they interviewed just couldn't get the concept of a shark into their head. They kept thinking it was a whale. And, um, and, <laughs> and but Spielberg was a quick study and, and a, you know, a brilliant man. Um, he, he loved to um, have references to movies. That's what, how he could connect to characters and to plots. And so Peter, when he talked with him, always would bring in other movies and say, you know, such and such a character is like so-and-so in this other movie. So lucky us, I mean, you know, lucky, lucky us. We had um, such brilliant producers and a brilliant director and great, great actors in the movie. And um, as Peter always said, you know, it's so fortunate to be a writer and to be able to get out of your room in the attic, type, type, typing away, and then be able to get out onto the ocean and have adventures and learn and um, begin to get involved in, in all of those ocean issues. So um, it was for us just an extraordinary, extraordinary trip. And how, this, how did Peter's love of the ocean and love of sharks kind of how did that integrate with, with the movie and then with his conservation initiatives? Yeah, well, when Peter wrote the book, truly in those you know, early 70s, uh, still people didn't know a heck of a lot, a lot about sharks. And there was still a feeling 
that um, the only good shark is a dead shark. I mean, there was really not much emphasis on sharks as the apex predator, and they, you know, that did not happen. But um, but very soon after the movie, um, Peter, there was a lot more research about sharks, and and actually a lot of um, marine biologists and um, university people tell me that that Jaws really initiated so much interest and excitement in sharks that there were hundreds, if not thousands of young people who wanted to become marine biologists. You know, they wanted to be like Richard Dreyfuss, uh, the Hooper in the movie and get out there and have some adventure. And they realized that you could be a marine conservationist or a marine biologist and be out on the ocean and not be sitting in a lab someplace, right? So. So I think there were many results of, of JAWS. Um, one result that horrified us was an uptick in shark tournaments and the killing of sharks. And we were very sorry that people were afraid of sharks too. Um, and we, through our, through our laws and through our work in ocean conservation, tried to get people to understand that you know, human beings are not the main food of sharks. And if you get bitten, if you hit an artery or something, then yes, you can die. But most sharks take a bite, it's a test bite, they turn around and swim away. And, and here in California, we've got lots of white sharks. Uh, um, John McCosker who's a top shark expert once told me that yeah. you know, the return of white sharks is a uh, sign of health for the ecosystem and problematic for recreational water users. Yeah. But I like to think of it as, you know, if there's not something bigger and meaner than you are out there, it's not really wilderness. So it's kind of, we've made our peace and kind of appreciate our, our men in gray suits as the surfers call them. Now, you know, 50 years, more than 50 years after Jaws, at the time it was written, the great whites had left the Cape they've been exterminated. And now with the return of seals, you're seeing uh, white sharks returning to the, the original waters in which that novel is written. Um, Peter would probably be quite happy to, with, with that, that return, that renewal. Well, I think it would be pretty fascinating to him. And, and actually, I, I, I find it um, so interesting that the, the when, when the white sharks began to come back to the Cape and to the Northeast, because there were seals and there, were, there was food for them, uh, the white shark conservancy started and people approached, this was a new NGO group that started in Chatham on the Cape. And um, so people, instead of going into a panic, um, realized that sharks are part of the ecosystem of the ocean that we don't own the ocean. And they had a much more reasonable response to the sharks coming back. And now they, um, they do have, of course they have boats going out to sea to view the sharks. Uh, I know that the fishermen are upset because of course all these seals are eating so many fish and they, their, their fish um, catch has gone way down. So. So it's, it's a delicate balance. Uh, and I think people are still grappling with what to do or how to cope with it, but I think there's nothing to do. They just do what the West Coast people do, right, David? 
you had you, the commercial fishermen you know, the in, uh, there. commercial yeah. fishermen in California were the first to support the White Shark Protection Act. They yeah, figured yeah. under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, they weren't allowed to shoot the seals, so let nature take its course, and they hoped uh, there'd be enough white sharks to take out enough seals. But um, yeah. but you you really you and Peter really after the movie came out, he continued to write books, but you really like started doing global um, exploration and, and filmmaking and uh, tell, tell us about kind of all the, the global yeah. ocean travels you did. Yes, oh, it was, we were, we were just so lucky. So we, we immediately, <laughs> actually the first thing that happened was American sportsmen um, asked Peter to go down to South Australia to um, cage dive with the Great Whites. And this was in the very beginning of cage diving. And Rodney Fox had created a cage. Uh, so who could you know, resist an offer like that? So off we went to South Australia. And I'll tell my quick little story because Peter, <laughs> Peter we got down there. There was a half a horse hanging off the stern of the boat because that was what they used for bait. and. Um, and I was a woman in the 70s in Australia. So they banished me to the upper deck because women were not welcome on boats. Peter got into the cage. The, the, a beautiful female, big, big female came up to take a bite of the horse, got a line caught in between her teeth. She didn't break the line, it just got caught. So of course she was caught and she started to flap around and back and forth. Peter's cage went upside down, topsy-turvy. I screamed at the guys, the, the filmer, the film men saying, uh, the cameraman saying, get the rope out of the shark's mouth. Uh, and they, they, of course, were so involved in their being behind the camera that they didn't do anything. So I came down from the upper deck, elbowed my way through them, came right up. When the shark came up again, I grabbed the rope, tugged it as hard as I could. Out it came. The shark was peaceful, everything fine. Peter stayed down with the shark for another half an hour. And he came up and said, what was all that commotion to begin with? Uh, and they all had to say it was his wife, Wendy, who had saved the day. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, came them. into the rescue. I love <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> so that was, that was really, um, you know, our first adventure. And it was so powerful to see this gorgeous, gorgeous fish um, that Peter was hooked and I was hooked. And then the National Geographic proposed a few um, expeditions to do more research with David Dubelay and with other scientists and photographers. And, oh gosh, we had, I don't know, Peter, I had many, many, many trips. I went on two or three of them. And um, we of course very quickly learned that there was a lot of devastation going on in the ocean. We saw finned sharks, we saw plastic, we saw pollution, we, and we learned more and more. And so Peter um, really dedicated himself to doing whatever he could for ocean conservation. I was on the board of Environmental Defense Fund for 18 years, and Peter did a lot of um, speeches for them. Uh, it was fun. I would go with him because he was not a real policy guy. I was sort of the policy wonk. 
So if he gets stumped on something, he'd turn to me in the audience and, and I would try to give some uplifting message about uh, the progress we were making, right? As environmentalists, yeah. you know, we always have to start be talking about the progress and we have made progress. You've been doing a lot of conservation and what do you think some of the kind of the big achievements um, that you and Peter have made other than obviously, you know, movies and education, but as far as like getting people to understand sharks and really going back to those heartstrings that they are not these monsters, but they are a really important part of the ecosystem. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as you know, it's just incremental steps and, and every interview you hope helps, every um, movie you do you hope helps. I think you, you hope that every incremental step you do, whether it's a movie or an article, a magazine article, he did um, uh, many movies with Greg Stone and the New England Aquarium. He did, um, uh, oh, these were great. I'm just remembering these. He did hundreds of, um, of 20 and 30 second spots for radio programs. Hello, I'm Peter Benchley. A person would be more at risk from being killed by bee stings or even struck by lightning than killed by a shark. Most sharks are actually shy creatures that pose no threat to human beings. I've been with Wild Aid now for about 10 years. And actually, Peter and I went with Wild Aid to Asia to try to help on their shark finning campaign, their anti-shark finning campaign. And that campaign has been very, very successful. In the last eight years, uh, there's been a 85% reduction in the demand for shark fin soup in China. Wow, that's so um, while they're still working on that campaign, this what they do is they use um, famous people, uh, Jackie Chan, Yao Ming, Maggie Q, to do um, public service spots on um, Chinese uh, television and billboards, and um, they in China we're able to get millions of dollars worth of free ad space uh, because the Chinese government actually supports it. Um, they, they think it's just fine for us to, to be there working on shark fins. Our very first Blue Vision Summit in 2004, we invited Peter to speak and you and Peter came. It was a really lovely event. So after Peter passed away, I think we talked about creating a word in his honor because most people knew he'd written Jaws, but most people weren't aware of this whole history of conservation. And uh, for 10 years, we had the Peter Benchley Ocean Award that we co-hosted. And here's yes. the yes. award Manta that, uh, that was designed by the artist Wyland. Mm -hmm. um, and it really, for 10 years, it kind of became the Oscars of the Oceans, where we were able to bring everyone from grassroots activists and youth to scientists, media figures, and, and heads of state together to, uh, as I say, kind of honor those who are providing solutions at scale. Yes. And I'm so grateful, David, that you started that. Really, it, it has been, it was just a wonderful, wonderful event, I thought, for the ocean community. And, um, and, uh, and when we finally retired it, um, that was, it was a sad day, but I think, you know, those 10 years were, were superb and um, gosh, wasn't it exciting, you know, when you would get all the applications and nominations and you would read through all these hundreds of people around the world that are doing so many 
um, progressive, wonderful um, actions for the ocean. And, and I think it, it showed everybody how much progress we are making and have made. Um, so thank you. I'm glad you started it and I'm glad we carry it on together. I think those networks are, you know, we're really strong and, and continue because you want to connect uh, all levels of, of society who care about the ocean. And I think that's, that's what we've learned is that the ocean really can unify people and it can be a, you know, an issue that crosses uh, traditional barriers of, of race and class and even, even political party. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was really wonderful that the Benchley Awards were teamed up with the lobbying events on the Hill. So yes. when, you know, I attended, I think all 10 of them, and we would always team up with, you know, different communities. We learned about the issues. We contacted our legislative leaders. We had delegations from all over the country, and then we celebrated at the Benchley Awards. So it really was a wonderful experience across the board where you could bring people in at all different levels and then celebrate in the end. And I, I believe that those networks that were formed early on and during those 10 years with the Benchley Awards are still going strong. And we all know now that we can, you know, if we start protecting the mangrove, that will help with carbon sequestration. And the seagrass is really absolutely vital and that people can do seagrass and um, can plant seagrass. And I've been reading Bren Smith's book, Eat Like a Fish. Oh my gosh, this guy is just great. Uh, and you know, he's right up in the Thimble Islands near Stonington. So I'm going to go visit him this summer. And, uh, but for, for those, those who haven't read it, what's it to say? For those who haven't read it, uh, Bren Smith uh, was a rough and tumble fisherman for most of his life out on the ocean, just and, and on big factory ships and, and just loved it, but eventually realized, you know what, this is just not working. We're catching less and less fish and the ocean is in trouble. So he is now um, an ocean farmer and he farms seaweed, mussels, oysters, clams um, on a 20 acre plot. He has an NGO group that is helping other people uh, farm the ocean. Uh, he has a whole group of people who support him in Connecticut. Uh, and uh, he has chefs on board that are creating more and more uh, recipes. And as he said, seaweed is the new green. No, seaweed is the new kale. That's what he says. <laughs> There's so much blue economy that could, could make a difference. And I think, you know, I mean, a strange way, and, and part of that is also setting aside 30% of um, the land in the ocean. The U.S. is close to that because, and you can talk to it as, as a former politician who still numbers politicians among your friends, but, uh, you know, like one of the world's great maritime uh, marine parks, uh, Papahanaumokuakea in Hawaii, it was established by Republican President George W. Bush and expanded by a Democratic President Barack Obama. And, uh, you know, it has value that. Yeah, I, I, I think that this that we are going to get. Um, I, I really do believe that we will get a lot of the Ocean Climate Action Plan passed in a bipartisan way. I, I mean, I think all of the ideas are are really excellent. They make sense to people. It's so interesting, isn't it, that that. Um, even though we were depressed during those four years of Trump, 
the wind kept wind power kept going corporations kept kept on the the car companies were not especially you know jumping on board trump making uh the the standards for gasoline uh less stringent and um and i think that now it's just going to be a huge blossoming of of people realizing that we can do the things that we've been talking about for the last 20 years. Very often I introduce the movie Jaws to um, hundreds of people who are families. They're all families. And they are all there to get the thrill that they get out of watching Jaws, but also um, because they're so excited about sharks and they want to learn more about the ocean and, um, and they're, they're so knowledgeable. I mean, I, I'm almost embarrassed sometimes to talk to these kids because they, they know much more than me. They know the names of sharks. And um, so it's really, um, I, I think Peter would be thrilled to, to be here now and to see um, all of the fascination with sharks and the education and the excitement and, and um, all the, the fans of, of sharks and keeping sharks in the ocean. So that's, that's one very nice thing to think about with uh, Jaws, even though it was a scary movie to begin with. I think now it's, it's like Alice in Wonderland <laughs> or something. People are just excited about what it represents and how exciting the ocean is. We just want to thank you so much for all of your positive energy over the years. Every time I see you, you have a beautiful smile on your face and you really are a shining example of how we can all work together and protect something that we love. So I just want to just thank you for all of your work, your, your lifetime of working. Thank you very much. I love working with you and I love working with David and um, onward, as we say. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.